So this uh, Advent is a season, is a, a time when we live in between, between Jesus' first coming and the second coming. Someone asked, what does Advent mean? Advent is a Latin word meaning coming, celebrating that Christ has come and that he is coming again. And I was thinking about it this last week that we, this time is, we live in between the times, between his first coming and his second. And I was thinking about that some of how Tracy and I right now, we're living in between times. And actually, after Tuesday, we'll be in a small uh, in-between time. Uh, Tuesday is Tracy's last treatment, uh, last chemo treatment. So I'm grateful for that. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have a short period, uh, and probably until January, of a time in between. Uh, celebrating the fact that she's done and, and spending time with her family, but then also anticipating time when, she'll, uh, when we'll be to the coast, probably to Vancouver for her radiation uh, to begin. So we're living in, that'll be an in-between time, <laughs> sort of after chemo, but not yet to the radiation time in between. And even cancer itself, um, it's for us, or for me at least, it's been a time in between. Um, is the, from the time that Tracy was diagnosed until the time we wait again to hear the words that she's cured, the time in between, looking forward. And the thing is, I know that many of you are in between right now. Some of you are in the middle of difficult things or in the middle of nothing, waiting for something good to come, but you're in between, muddling through, waiting for better days. I know some of you are waiting for something to happen. There's a bit of excitement, maybe a bit of fear, maybe a bit of hope mixed into that, maybe about things happening uh, with your health or the surgeries or things happening in your family, things happening at school or work. We know what it's like to live in between, that time in between. But there's also this point that as Advent, it's a great time for us to remember that actually all of us are in a in a large, in a grand, in-between time. The time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Like I said already, it's the season of Advent. When we look back, and so it's kind of in the corner, maybe over the time we'll move it closer, but the, the scene of the nativity over there, of Christ's birth, that our Lord Jesus, as amazing as it is, as much as we take it for granted, God took on flesh and he came and he lived among us. And he showed us his kingdom. And he showed us what it looked like to follow him. And then he died and then he rose again on the cross. Then he ascended to God's right hand where he is ruling and reigning right now. We talked about that last week. But we also look forward to the day when Christ is coming again. And the Son of God, the Son of Man will come riding on the clouds of heaven. And everything here that is broken will be made right. Everything here that doesn't work will be made new. Not only that, but we look forward and back in the sense of the God's kingdom, that God's kingdom is here already. We know that from Scripture. We see glimpses of it in our lives at times, but not here fully yet. There's still more of his kingdom to come. And as time is leading up to Christmas, it's, we even feel that. I see people who talk about Christmas being at the same time the best time of the year and the worst time of the year. I know people, some of you, who talk about Christmas as, you know, these great memories um, with my spouse. And now they're gone. So those great memories are a mix of good and bad now. 
It's one of the reasons why I love to read the prophets this time of year. Because they seem to have this amazing ability to hold together these two ideas of discouragement and hope, to hold them together in the same place. This morning I've been, or actually this week, been reading through Isaiah. And um, in the first part of Isaiah, chapter 1 and chapter 2, chapter 1 is, is pretty tough medicine, speaking uh, as a prophet, judgment for Israel, for their unfaithfulness. But then there's this, this little part in Psalm 2 where it speaks of their hope, what it will be like one day. And if you would, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. Or if you want to, it's in your bulletin as well, this little white sheet. I just have to say this. Like, I love it how God does this. The title of this sermon is Hope and Living Our Hope. <laughs> and all this morning I've seen how the Holy Spirit has been orchestrating this, this chorus of hope. And today is being Hope Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent. If you would, um, read along with me here in Isaiah 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in light of the Lord. As I read this, I'm reminded of our hope, of our hope and the response that it draws out of us. That this Isaiah is speaking to the people of God. He's saying that not only, way the, not only talking about the way things will be, but the way our response should be right now. Because the way things will be should shape the way we live right now. I love how the psalm begins with hope, a message of hope, speaking of how God will be exalted. That in the last days, God will be exalted above everything. And in... in the scriptures here, it talks about the hill of the Lord. In Hebrew, it mentions hills and, and mountains. You see, in the ancient world, the hills were kind of the thin place between heaven and earth. You know, we remember, like, Moses went up on a mountain to speak with the Lord. And if you read through Kings and Chronicles, you hear about how now the people that, um, the, uh, the Philistines and those others around them, they would have high places. That's where they would go to worship their gods. See, in the ancient world, a hill, a high place, was a place that brought you closer to God. And, and here Isaiah is saying that all of these hills will shrink in comparison to the hill of the Lord. That God will be head and shoulders above everything else, above every idol, above every ideology, nation, regime, false god, everything, the Lord God will be exalted above all. And the result of this is that people will stream to the Lord God. In verse 2 it says, uh, it will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to him. I love how they translated that because it really, it literally is, they will flow like a river to the Lord. You see, in the ancient world, you did this to a king. 
you would come and you would, everyone would gather around to pay homage to a king. So not only is it saying that God will be exalted and people will come because he's the king, because God would be Lord over everyone. But not only that, but there's a sort of reverberation. As everyone's coming in, the ways of the Lord are also going out. The Lord God becomes the epicenter of all humanity, the beating heart of humanity, the center from which everyone takes their cues. So no longer will money or power or greed or regimes, no longer will they be the center of humanity, but the Lord God. The Lord will be the center. And everyone will come. They will come to his house and they will learn. The Lord will teach them his ways. And people will walk in his paths. This is the Hebrew way of saying that, when he says to walk, this is the Hebrew way of saying they will live God's way. But they will learn God's way and they will become God's people and they will walk or live their lives God's way. This means concrete things like things like compassion and mercy and justice. These won't be ideas that we talk about anymore. They'll be the way we live. Things like faith, hope, and love won't be things that we just read about in Scripture. It will be the way we live our lives. The ways all of us live our lives. And the result of all of this will be peace. Listen to this. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It doesn't actually say here shalom or God's peace. But this is an image of shalom. The fullness of God's peace. You see, like our idea or in, our, in English, peace usually means the end of war. Maybe it means a, a ceasefire where people haven't really changed their way they feel about each other. They're just not shooting at each other anymore. That's kind of the limits of our peace. And the idea of shalom is the idea not only of peace, the ceasefire, but the presence of prosperity, the presence of fullness and goodness. Everything is full and complete. This is the idea of God's peace. This is shalom. It says in this place, God will be the one who's judging the nations. Like a judge in a courtroom. He'll be the one giving decisions. He'll be the one making sure that justice happens. He'll be the one arbitrating between different sides that are in disagreement. And they will beat their swords into plowshares. They will, they will beat their spears into pruning hooks. In my, in my notes, um, I remember them if they're pictures, and so I drew a little picture of, a, of an AK-47. To say this, that in our maybe modern language, they will melt down their AK-47s and make garden tools out of them. They will convert their battleships into vacation cruise liners. This is the image of peace. And it's funny, I'm thinking of this because, because this morning as I was reading over my sermon notes, Corbin came in. He has got an eye for weapons. I, <laughs> I think it's part of it's my fault. but um, he, uh, 
he, over all of these pictures and stuff I have, or writing and notes and stuff, he goes, Dad, what's this? And I said, what does it look like? And he said, it looks like an AK-47, Dad. And, yeah. Um, but then I got to share with him about God's peace. Because he saw the swords and the spear, too. And he said, what are these, Dad? And I said, listen to this, Corbin. The one day when the Lord is exalted above everyone else, that in the last days, God will bring his peace. And they will take their swords and they'll hammer them down into garden tools. He didn't know what a plowshare was. They'll take spears and they'll make pruning hooks that they use in an orchard or a vineyard. They'll melt down AK-47s and make garden tools out of them. This is an image of God's peace for us. I told him no longer will they even need to train for war. Peace will be so prevalent that not only will people stop fighting, but they won't even have to train anymore. I think about God's peace in our world right now. I was thinking about the situation in Syria. I watched this little five-minute video trying to explain just even briefly and maybe too simplistically what's happening there. You know, things that have happened over the years. I'm talking about four years ago how two groups started fighting, rebels and the regime that was in place. And then over time, because of input from other groups, supporting different sides, that group grew from two to four, so now you have four different groups fighting there. And then more and more aid coming from different countries in the Middle East and then the U.S. and other Western countries and Russia. And I think the whole place is just a mess now. Just an absolute tangled mess. To the point now that you have, like this last week, uh, Turkey shot down a Russian bomber. I mean, the two, like, ostensibly, on the outside, they're supposed to be doing, have the same goals, right? And yet they're shooting each other down. It's a mess. We need God's peace. So it's no surprise that, especially during Advent, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, and bring your peace, that you would be judge, that you would be the one arbitrating between sides, because we, for the life of us, despite all of our reason and knowledge and technology, we can't figure it out. And when the kingdom of God comes, when Christ comes again, when God is exalted above all other hills and mountains and false gods, things will be different. Peace will be the way of life. And it's interesting because right now we struggle to have peace. I was thinking about it, how we respond to violence. I was thinking of, of Paris two weeks ago. And they were attacked. And I was thinking of uh, President Holland's response. We're going to bomb them more. They bombed us. We're going to respond with more bombs. Violence, somehow thinking that more violence will, will somehow solve violence. You know, I think Jesus was onto something when he said the greatest commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. When Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, he says, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. 
as Christ taught us to pray for those who curse us, to bless those who injure us, to do good to those who harm us. Now I know the pragmatist is going to say, you know what, that doesn't work. Come on, Jason. You know, that's nice in theory and maybe someday, but right now on the ground, how's that going to work? But honestly, I look at it right now, pragmatically speaking, how well is our way working? How well is more violence bringing peace? How well is more bombs stopping the bombing? We need God's peace. In verse 5, I think it gets to part of how we live. Because I believe that as the church, we are God's agent right now for his kingdom. That we are God's plan, his church. We are God's plan for bringing his kingdom here on earth now. For living out his kingdom. That our hope, our hope in God's peace will shape the way we live right now. Verse 5, if you look at it, it says, Come, O house of Jacob, O people of God, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now it's poetic, and I mean, I don't know if some of you, but my thinking was, kind of what, what does this mean? What does it mean to walk in the light of the Lord? I mean, I have a general kind of vague idea, but what does it mean? And it's interesting, as I was reading through this, and it doesn't really come out very well in English, but um, if you look in verse 3, says, he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. That part, so that we may walk in his paths, in Hebrew is almost identical so that we may walk in his light or the light of the Lord. There's a similarity and I don't think it's accidental. Verse 3 talks about learning from God. Learning from him and walking in his ways. Verse 5 talks about walking in the light of the Lord. But this comes to learning his ways studying his word, spending time with God, spending time with our Lord Jesus Christ, and then living that out. Learning his ways so that we can live his way. Listen to that again. Learning God's ways so that we can live God's way. That we would move beyond right knowledge into right living. That not only would we store up more information, we would let the word of God shape who we are, but we would live that out in our lives. That we'd be people of compassion. Ridiculous compassion. Compassion that doesn't make sense. Compassion that's not safe or prudent. People of mercy. Forgiving when everyone else says, you know what, they deserve it, and yet we forgive. People of justice. Last night we were at the concert and the the. Tim, the leader of the band, was talking about his trip to Cambodia. And he's talking about a 14-year-old girl who had been trafficked since she was 10 years old. He's saying, we as the church have to respond. Justice. That we walk in the light of the Lord, that we are people of faith, that our hope changes the way we live and that we love. The greatest of these is love that we would love people in surprising ways. 
in ridiculous ways, in ways that aren't prudent. They aren't financially sound. Yet they evidence the kingdom of God. This morning, I hear the prophet Isaiah speaking to us. I hear him speaking of our hope that that in the last days, God will be exalted above everyone else. That all the nations, they will rally around the Lord our God. And it will bring the fullness of his peace, the fullness of his shalom. Swords will be beat into farm instruments. And that we are called to walk in the light of the Lord. Amen.